Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and we are on part two of this series uh, that we're calling He, Not Me. The idea of the series is taking a look at how the death of God benefits me, about how the, uh, the Jesus was betrayed and how about how he was abandoned, about he died, not just for me, but actually instead of me and instead of you. And so today we're, uh, we're taking a look at specifically and following along in the story from last week at how Jesus was abandoned, how Jesus was left alone, not just for me, but instead of me. And so specifically, we're taking a look at just what that means about being alone, about what it means to be lonely. And and so I just want to kind of acknowledge there's a lot of people in the room, a lot of people listening and watching online. You come from a lot of different places. Uh, For some of you, maybe that loneliness that you experience is temporary. Thank God for it. Uh, For some of you, that loneliness that you experience is chronic and is ongoing. But for all of us who will ever experience what it means to be lonely, it is painful. And sometimes, sometimes, honestly, it, it can like sneak up on you. It did me. Uh, I, did, uh, I did this spiritual retreat with some friends of mine uh, years ago where we all got together. It's a pastor friends, and this is our idea of a good time. We went to a monastery uh, together where the monks that lived there uh, took, or they did this, uh, they practiced the habit of silence. Now, some of you know me in my extreme extroverted ways, and you know that I have a hard time with that. Because, well, the nice thing about being so extroverted is that you never have to worry or you never have to wonder about what I'm thinking because it's all happening out loud in real time. I've sat with some of you who are introverted, and and you think before you speak, and I'm like, what kind of game is that? Who does that, right? And I just like, why are we both just looking at each other right now? Is nobody thinking anything? Like, let's get it out there. It was very, very difficult for me, especially because during the meals, they would also stay silent. And so you get this dining hall full of uh, like a whole bunch of people, and everybody is just sitting in silence eating. If you've ever sat and ate in silence with other people, it's the most uncomfortable feeling in the world. You can just hear the chewing of every single person in that room. It's disgusting and it's uncomfortable. And so I'm sitting there, breakfast and lunch, silence. For dinner, they actually just had a monk picked out and that guy would go up in front and they would read, uh, and they would read a chapter out of a book. And I thought, okay, they're monks and they're Christians, so it's probably going to be the Bible. I'm good with that. Maybe a theological text, maybe even a book of poems. Like, I don't know, but it's going to be something Jesus-y. No, the book that they had picked out, I'm not making it up, was Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Because the monks like science. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe silence was better than this. I've got no idea what Hawking is talking about and the guy reading it. Presumably everybody's like, oh yeah, I get this. I'm like, who are you guys? The only thing, the only talking that was encouraged is that during one of the five worship services every day, you're encouraged to chant along the Psalms with the monks. It was a commitment that we made for uh, four days. I made it 48 hours. I was out of there. I just, it was, it was like this, even though it was, what it taught me, the takeaway, is that even though I was with a bunch of people, even though I was with other Christians, even though I was with close friends, there's still this sense in which a big, like, lead blanket of, of, of loneliness just weighed on me. And so I know from talking to many of you that you experience that same weight of loneliness, 
to some extent or another. It's universal. Uh, Emily White wrote this book uh, called Lonely, and and she just shares the stories uh, of how some people experience uh, and deal with their own unique loneliness. And and she writes, and it's it's universal. She tells the story of 86-year-old Bert, who lost his wife uh, two weeks after their 60th wedding anniversary. And, and, And Bert says that he cannot even look at his wife's hairbrush without being overwhelmed with emptiness, his words. And the spectrum goes all the way from 86-year-old Bert all the way down to 19-year-old Jana, who is halfway through her first year of college. And the thing is, everybody told her, she says, that these are going to be the best four years of your life. Everybody told her that you're going to meet all kinds of new people, that you're going to develop these friendships that you're going to have for the rest of your life, and that you're going to go do interesting things with interesting people and go to parties. And she said, the reality was starkly the opposite of that. I showed up on campus and I just, I don't know anybody. I didn't make any new friends. I'm awkward and shy. I know that about me. I don't even see my roommates. I'm not going to parties. I'm not meeting new people. Is this, her words, is this truly the best four years of my life? Is it all downhill from here? Because of the loneliness, the weighted lead blanket over top of everything, I mean, is crushing after a while. And so I know from talking to many of you and the conversations that I've had with you, uh, the conversations that go something like this, I've had it a few times now, where somebody comes up to me and they're like, hey, how's it going? Great. Yeah, I didn't make it to church on Sunday. And I'm like, Jesus doesn't really take attendance, neither do we. That's fine. But you're forgiven anyway. Thank you for for confessing. It's like, no, no, I didn't make it to church because my roommate was out of town. And I think, oh, this is like a transportation thing. Like we can work with it. We can fix this. I mean, we, we have Uber. We have the technology to get you to church. It's like, no, no, no. I, I, I'm actually the one that has the car. I didn't go to church because I don't want to go by myself. And I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand. Is that you? Is that, we're not going to go that way because, but I just know. And many of us around here, we know because we hear the stories. Even though you know this place and you're comfortable with this place, and you know what happens here on the weekends, and you're comfortable with me on stage, like all of this, and you want to be here, but there's just something about going alone that exacerbates that feeling of loneliness. And you don't want to feel that, and I, and I understand that. It's painful. If I could just celebrate uh, some, of our, uh, some of our usher team right now, is that I sat in on this usher uh, team lead uh, meeting uh, a number of weeks ago where we uh, were just talking about like best practices and what could the rest of the team kind of benefit from some of the learning of uh, watching and reading about how this is best done. And, uh, and I just got to celebrate. There was one comment uh, on that team of somebody who said, you know, I've just like made a habit because people are uncomfortable coming to church uh, by themselves and we want to celebrate that and we want to say how, how like awesome that is and we love that. And so I have a habit of whenever somebody comes and I'm like, you know, I'm the guy who finds the seat, how many? And they like gesture one. He goes, I've learned I never say just one because no son or daughter of the king is ever just anything. And I love that. But again, it goes towards that point, the greater point of like sometimes we feel that aloneness, and it's so heavy, and it's so real. And I want to tell you today that God does not want you to be lonely. 
God does not want you to be alone. Could we just say this together? Because it's our big takeaway today, righty? God doesn't want me to be alone. He doesn't. In fact, I get that right out of the Bible. You know the story of the Bible, the beginning, uh, the, the beginning of the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 22, God is making everything, right? He, he's making the sun and the moon and the stars. He's hanging it all just in the place and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. You want to know the first thing that God ever saw in the creation that he just got done making in Genesis chapter 2. He looked and he said, what's not good is for man to be alone. And so from Hebrew word man, ish, he creates isha, woman. Now, for a long time, we kind of looked at that and said, that's, a, that's probably like a marriage thing. And it's like, oh, yeah, man, to be alone. So, you know, woman uh, together. That's where we get our theological underpinnings for the uh, theological expression ring by spring. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not like a thing. Don't write that down. Uh, in fact, we know that that's not a thing. That's not what God intended. We know that because, because most of the disciples never got down on one knee. Like, Jesus never got married. And I think if Jesus could be a pretty good Christian, like, in single, you probably could too. He's not saying that the cure for your loneliness is to get married. Some married people are some of the loneliest people around. People with kids, people with families, they can still be lonely. People in crowds can still be lonely. Young people can be lonely. Old people can be lonely. Everybody experiences loneliness to one extent or another. And the good news, God does not want you to be alone. So he did something about it. He went alone so that you wouldn't ever have to be. Let me explain uh, what I mean by that by flipping to uh, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to pick it up uh, sort of where we left it off last year, or last week. Yeah, you've been around. It's a long series. Um, With... uh, and we're only on part two. Um, Matthew 26, verse 36. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can follow along uh, online, open the Bible app, or on the screen behind me. Um, just as a heads up for maybe those of you uh, guests with us today, welcome, first of all. Second of all, we have like this tradition around here that, uh, that we really dig into one passage. So I might like pull some things from elsewhere, but, but like we focus in on the story. And so we just kind of take it right through the story. And this is the story after the Passover and Judas and the betrayal story. Last week, part one, we come now to the garden story in Matthew 26, verse 36. It starts off this way. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So he comes to the garden called Gethsemane, which is just like interesting in itself because it's a Hebrew word that means olive press or oil press. And this is a little bit about what's happening. Jesus is just about to be pressed here as he never uh, experiences elsewhere in his life. And it says that he began to be tr- sorrowful and troubled. So, so like something happened as he's doing his like walkabout throughout the garden. Like he, he sees something that starts to make him sorrowful and, and troubled. Like what did he see? We're going to spend a little time in trying to figure out maybe what he see, saw. Maybe it's something that he didn't see. But what happened there that brought this trouble on him? Now I also want to mention this morning that we, we read the word troubled and we're like, oh yeah, so Jesus was like bummed out or was having a bad day. No, 
Now, it's much more than that. Because later on in the next line, it's going to say that he's sorrowful to the point of death. Like, this is heavy. One commentator wrote about the word that's used there and say, troubled is probably an understatement. It probably could be translated something more like horrified at what he saw. It's like akin to coming home from vacation and, and, or maybe just a night out. And you come home and you see the front door of your house is like, you know, bashed and knocked in or the windows are broken. And you're like, I don't know what's inside, but just that sight horrifies me because I know that that home to me is never going to be the same again. What did Jesus see that caused him so much trouble? Verse 38, he said to the disciples, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me to the point of death. You know, Luke tells this story. It's another gospel writer, and he kind of interviewed some eyewitnesses around this and, uh, and wrote his gospel that way. And Luke is also a physician by trade. And like the medical doctor of his day, Luke says, you know, I talked to people who said he was actually perspirating, sweating blood. It's a rare condition known today as hematidrosis. Uh, it's when the capillaries uh, in your, like the really little blood vessels, they actually burst. And, and so it kind of like, like soaks into your perspiration. Your sweat is red coming down. That's Jesus. Jesus is in sun, under such extreme stress right now that his capillaries are bursting. I heard a story from a pastor one time. Uh, and he said, uh, he, he said, I came out of... Um, I came out of the house and I watched my kid was at the bottom of the pool, not moving. That's that horrified trouble in him. So he dives in, he grabs the kid, scoops him up, puts him on shore. Now, thank God he was able to revive him and the paramedics and they came and they went to the hospital and, and he was okay. But they were observing him, keeping him overnight just to make sure that everything was okay. Except for as, as the color came back into his face, it came back red. And really kind of nasty looking. And so he asked the doctors what was going on. And the doc said, what probably happened was that as your son was going under the water, he screamed with such intensity. But because he was underwater, nobody could hear. But he screamed so hard and with such intensity that the capillaries, the blood vessels in his face started bursting. Okay, that's what Jesus is experiencing right here. Because of what he has seen, it terrifies him. The stress in his life right now is, is clearly overwhelming him. So this is what, this is what I want to do, church. Because, because even if you're not a Christian, if you're just kind of curious about this, or somebody just maybe promised you lunch here if you'd come to church and then go out later, whatever it is. Just what I want you to leave here today is knowing is that what Jesus experienced is unique on the human spectrum. What he did is, is different in a lot of different ways. And, and maybe you can, if you're a Christian or you're not, you'll look at it differently. But what we can all agree is that this death of Jesus and what was happening here was in fact unique. This was not a story like most martyr stories are told. You know, most of the time when you hear a story about somebody who died for their beliefs, these, these martyrs, I mean, they're impressive no matter how they're told. This one is unique. This one is really quite different. 
You know, you got a story uh, like Socrates, the philosopher, and you know, he was under this uh, um, a sentence of execution for corrupting the youth, for his teachings, right? For maybe generally being an annoying person who just asked a lot of questions and didn't provide a lot of answers, but like, whatever. Philosophy class is fine. I'll go back. Um, but like uh, Socrates, he goes to his death and he's, uh, and he's like joking the whole time. Even as, as he's drinking the hemlock, the poison that he knows is going to kill him. He'll just crack a few ones. Like he's, he's stoic Socrates through the end. Jesus is not like that here. He's not cracking jokes through the end. He's not Stoic Socrates. Jesus is not, is not spiritualized Stephen, the first Christian martyr, told, uh, story told in the book of Acts, who died for his beliefs of being a Christian, and he knelt down as they stoned him. They hurled rocks at his body and at his head until he was dead. And he knew that was going to happen. He knew it was happening. And his last words was, was surrendering his spirit over to God and saying, these words of Jesus, don't forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is not spiritualized Stephen. He's not stoic Socrates. These aren't all going to start with S. But like, he's not heroic in a sense. Like the story of, of Spartacus, right? This amazing, amazing story of heroism. Spartacus is a slave turned gladiator who led a slave rebellion over the Roman oligarchy in, in that day. It's this incredible story that I don't you could probably make a movie out of it or something, right? And like, like he leads this like massive rebellion. He defeats the oligarchy. He, he gets away. And he's leading his, like, his like, group of gladiator slave soldier army now. He leads them out of Rome. They actually defeat the Romans. They escape. He can see northern Italy, the countryside. Freedom is just over the ridge. But he turns around and he marches back to Rome to make one last final grand stand and dies on the battlefield. Like that's a hero. Jesus is not heroic like Spartacus. He's not defiant in the face of his upcoming death, like my favorite martyr, Polycarp. Polycarp is a funny name. It means many fruit, but that's not the point. Polycarp was a follower, a disciple uh, of John, the John that wrote the book of John, uh, that John. And he followed after John, and so he's a very well-known, very famous uh, uh, Christian leader in the church, and, uh, and he lived, uh, John lived a long time, so Polycarp came at the end. Polycarp lived a long time. So he's like one of the only like generation one or two, whatever you'd call that, like followers of Jesus that late on. And so as this Jesus movement is like going viral and taking over and the Roman Empire can start to see their influence diminish and they're like, we need to do something about this. And so they're going to do something by force. They're going to burn Christians alive, burn them at the stake. And so Polycarp, being a well-known Christian leader, is arrested. He's put on top of a pyre, tied up with essentially kindling all below. Polycarp, this guy, you, you got you to hear, Polycarp calls out in his last words. He goes, you think, emperor, that I'm afraid of the fire, which will burn only for a few hours Emperor, you should be afraid of the eternal fires of hell that I'm never going to experience because of my hope in Jesus Christ. And he ends it, I'm not making this up, with, so come on, boys, bring the fire. Whoa, like, drop mic, right? And they did. 
And he went to his death defiant and confident to the end. But Jesus is not defiant like Polycarp. He is terrified. He is beside himself. He is under such intense stress that his blood vessels are bursting. What did he see that caused him that? Maybe it was something he didn't see. Let's continue the story where verse 39 says that going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. That's what he saw. He saw the cup. Now, we've covered this in the past, but just as a, as a reminder, this is almost surely um, the, the reference to the cup that was uh, in Passover. Passover, even by Jesus' day, was a tradition that was, uh, was highly scripted and had a long track behind it of exactly what you're supposed to do when. And Jesus, as the host of that Passover meal, probably went through this script with his disciples. And one of the last stages of that Passover meal is actually taking a cup of wine. It was the fourth cup to be specific. And they'd pass it around the table and each person would take a drink from it. And the person that got to the end would raise it up and would declare God's, would pronounce God's judgment on God's enemies. And then he would drink however much remained of that cup of wine. And it's probably not like the Costco stuff that's all clean and factory made. It's like nasty with floaties and dregs and it's bitter. And that's the point. It's nasty. And so he would drink it down as a, as a sign, as a sign of God pouring out and pronouncing his wrath, his judgment on God's enemies. Now, they had a pretty good idea about who God's enemies was. But remember, Jesus flips it around and Jesus says, no, no, we're God's enemies because we've stepped outside because we've been disobedient. And Jesus is saying, that's really why I came because we all keep honestly screwing up and the world is so broken. And so Jesus, going to the garden, he uses this cup imagery because he's going, God, I see before me your judgment being poured out, your wrath being poured out. I see what's ahead. And I see why it's needed. I, I see that it's going to, because people, we have to believe in a God who's good. And we have to believe in a God who's just. We have to believe in a God who's not just going to see all the evil and all the atrocities in the world and just turn a blind eye to it. God isn't going to do that. He's going to fix it. He's going to deal with it. And to do that, he has to address it. And Jesus is going, but it's not going to get poured out on us. Jesus is going, it's going to get poured out on me. And I see the cup in front of me of the wrath of God's judgment poured out. And I'm asked to drink it all down, the dregs and bitterness to the end. And I don't want to do it. Father. Elsewhere, he calls them Abba, which Aramaic just means dad. Take the cup from me. And the father, for the first time, doesn't answer his son. Every time Jesus asked for something to his dad in heaven, the answer came. 
breaking the bread and blessing it to heaven. He distributed a kid's, kid's lunch 5,000 times over. He prays for God to heal. A blind man in sight comes back. Every time Jesus, he even acknowledges them publicly at times at Jesus' baptism. He goes under the water. He comes up and the spirit of God lands on him like a dove, it says. And the voice of God opens heaven and booms down. This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And for the first time, not just in the life and ministry of Jesus, for the first time, since the beginning of time, the son prays to his father. And there's only silence on the other end. And that silence is deafening. What did he see? No, no. It's what he didn't see. Verse 40, he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Think about that for a minute, would you? From Jesus' perspective, that he goes to his father who's silent, to his friends who are sleeping. Sleeping friends, silent father. In the next few verses, it's just, that's repeated. Sleeping friends, silent father. And again, and again, and again. And it just, this cycle keeps going until Jesus, he just can't stand it anymore. And he says, great, arise, there's my betrayer. This is happening now. Silent father, sleeping friends. That's what Jesus happened. It's like the way that Matthew is telling the story, Matthew is going like, you know, it's, it's like the death and the torture, the crucifixion, that's bad. But it's almost like, like Matthew wants to, to highlight and point out his own way. It's the abandonment. It's the loneliness that Jesus experienced between his sleeping friends and his silent father. It's the, it's the alone. That's what hurt him most. You know, I grew up in church, like many of, many of you. I, I grew up hearing some of these stories. And I grew up knowing about, about Good Friday and the death of God on the cross. I've heard that one before a few times. And I've always thought, and maybe you can relate in the same way, but I always thought that the worst part about that week, which is really this week, this is in the church calendar, Palm Sunday, it's Holy Week. It goes to Monday, Thursday. That was last week's about the Passover meal to the uh, Good Friday, uh, which is his uh, crucifixion. Remember, 630 right here. And then Resurrection Sunday, Easter, uh, one week from today. And I always thought like the worst part about that whole week, you know, it was probably like Friday afternoon-ish. You know, like after the sham of a trial and they really start to abuse him. You know, this is like, this is outside of the Bible kind of stuff. The, the Bible authors don't really get to it too much, but the Romans kept great records. Uh, they were fantastic historians and uh, crucifixions were well known. Uh, they documented this stuff. People write down the procedures. Uh, Cicero talks about how they, uh, they ripped, and sometimes you'd see a, like a, a bone chip or something like go flying out of the body. Jesus was almost certainly disemboweled as they put him up on the cross. Right? There's, there's historic stuff about the, the nails you know, that went into his hands. The crown of thorns. Isaiah the prophet writes about how, um, a prophecy about how Jesus was, uh, was beaten up beyond recognition. 
And I always thought that was the worst part about the whole week. But you know, church, the thing is, the, the Bible writers, they don't really go into all that much gory detail about it. You know, maybe it's because they just knew it already and they didn't need to, to, need to waste uh, ink and papyrus on what everybody knew and experienced already, but, but I think it was more than that. I think that what was really bad, the worst part about the week, wasn't the physical pain. Jesus seemed to have done that with a level of confidence. The worst part was this one right here, that he was abandoned, that he was left alone. You know what? What would that have felt like to see his sleeping friends and a silent father? I've only been a dad for a little while, eight years or so. And I'm not even a perfect dad by any means. But I still know that when my kid is running around outside or playing on his scooter and he just bites it, right? And I can see he's running inside. He's got just a scraped up knee and it hurts like all get out. And he comes up and he pounds on the door for me to open it up and let him in. He kind of knows I can't just magically make it all go away. But just simply being in his dad's presence is going to take the edge off to an extent. Could you imagine Could you imagine if he bites and he's got blood running down his knee, down his shin, and he runs inside, bangs on the door for dad to open it up. And I open it up. I see him standing there and then I shut it. And I say, no. And the devastation and rejection that that kid would feel and sense. And I'm not even a perfect dad. And I haven't even known him all that long. The difference it would have been for the Son of God to exist with the Father for all eternity, experiencing and knowing and communing with his perfect love for all time. And then to pray and for the first time receive back nothing. Silence. Silence is an answer too. He knows. He knows he is all alone. I just want, I wonder, like, how would you do it? What was there to be gained on the other side? You know, was there, was there, was there glory after abandonment, after humiliation? No. What was there, what was there like eternal life that he didn't already have? Of course not. Some kind of form of, of deity he already was. Was there power on that far side? No power that he didn't automatically have already being the son of God. Church, and this is so important, the only thing, the only thing that Jesus gained on the far side of his abandonment And death is you, you and me. It's the only thing that he gained by doing all this that he didn't already have ahead of time. He did it because he knew of the love of God and he knew of the justice of God and he knew 
that God would never turn a blind eye to sin. He would never overlook it, that it had to be dealt with. But because of the love of God, he wouldn't pour it out on us. He wouldn't have us drink that cup. He would drink it himself. And so we say he was abandoned. Jesus was left alone so that you wouldn't ever have to be. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story of God declaring from the beginning of creation, I don't want you to be alone, so I'll make a way that you'll have eternal life and will never, ever have to be. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending love of God. I couldn't, I couldn't lose it. Still, you chase after me church. It's the way that Jesus fulfills those words from Psalm 23. It says, even though you might walk through the literal valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil for your father is always and forever, no matter what, with you. Okay. So what does that mean this week? So what do we do now? Here's, here's the thing. Here's the challenge up ahead. When you experience loneliness next, and maybe it's chronic, hopefully maybe it's temporary, but the next time that you experience loneliness, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that, that loneliness is an indicator. It's a signal. It's like the check engine light on your car that comes on. That something is wrong. Loneliness is a signal that something in your heart or in your soul isn't right. And so you can do what a lot of people do when the check engine light comes on in the car, and you can ignore it. You can pretend it's not there. You can take a little piece of black tape, and you can, can tape it. I'm preaching to somebody here, right? And pre- tape over it and pretend everything is fine. And you know what? As a pastor and not a mechanic, you'll be fine. You know, go ahead. Drive with it that way. You know, drive down I-96. Like, you'll be great. You'll be great right up until the point when your engine starts to smoke and sputter out. And then you're just stuck along I-96 somewhere because you didn't check the engine out. Loneliness is the same way. Loneliness is a signal that something in your heart just isn't right. And so here's the challenge this week is that when you experience that loneliness and you know something isn't right, don't hide it. Don't ignore it. Don't turn away from it. Don't put tape on it. Don't put on reruns of The Office on Netflix to delude yourself into thinking that you have people in your life. Don't allow YouTube videos to just roll on autoplay one after another because you, don't, you can't stand the thought of being alone. Don't hide it. Don't ignore it. Embrace it. It's a signal. Something is wrong. It's an opportunity to address it. And then do the very next hardest thing after that and say, okay, God, there's this thing in my life and I don't like it and I don't want it. In fact, it's kind of ugly. But here's the challenge. Offer it up to God and say, God, take it. Take my loneliness, this thing that's ugly, and make something beautiful out of it. Go ahead. See, most of the time, we think about the greatest offerings and the greatest gifts that we have to offer back to God, and they come out of our surplus. 
They come out of some area of our life, of having extra time or having uh, monumental giftedness or talent in some area and think, I'm going to serve God with my talents or, or serve God with my treasure, my finances, putting him first, like fantastic. Most of the time we think about the greatest gifts or the offerings to God come out of our overwhelming surplus. What I'm presenting to you here, church, is that you give not out of your overwhelming surplus, but out of your deficit. That you give by taking this part of your life that you've tried to fix a thousand different ways. I've tried to fill it with friends, fill it with parties, fill it with TV, fill it with distractions. And I still carry my loneliness along with me. And the greatest gift of worship that you could possibly offer might just be to take that loneliness and say, Here, God, I'm trusting you to be my Savior. Because you know what? When this indicator light goes off, it tells me in my soul that the solution is not better languages. It's not learning the five love languages. It's not better communication. It's not having more friends gathered around me. It's certainly not a social media thing. It's an indicator of my life that I don't need all of that. I need a savior. I need God, you in my life. And I'll tell you what is going to happen. You might experience times that you're alone. But instead of sensing the loneliness that usually accompanies with that, you're going to sense this new feeling, and it's actually called solitude. See, the difference between loneliness and solitude, loneliness, loneliness is you're escaping away. You just want to hide it. You want to get away from it. You don't want to experience the pain of life. And so you're masking it because you don't like it. But solitude embraces it. Solitude takes those feelings. Solitude takes all of the, the realities and the pressures and even the garbage of life and runs not away from it, but solitude runs toward it with the presence of your Father in heaven, with God in your life. The Spirit of God goes before you to guide the way. The power of God behind you to protect you. The Son of God beside you to be your friend through it all. And it's out of that place of health and restoration that you can start to grow with God. Grow with God and meet your other Jesus people and be in community, as we say around here, of do life together. And it's out of that place that you can head to the starting point desk in the back and sign up for a serving team and meet, meet your Jesus people that way or join or lead a small group and meet your Jesus people that way to do life together. But church, God does not want you to be alone. He was abandoned so you would never have to be. And you can walk through that valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because God is with you.